Father, we can learn nothing about you unless you reveal it to us. And you have chosen to do so, and you have put it in a written form. And we'd ask, Lord, that you would help us to remember the words that you have spoken and that are written down, so that we can just have that walk with you, that closeness. There's so many things that distract us, Lord, and I pray that we would not be distracted away from you, but only two things that encourage our relationship. And forgive us, Lord, when we fail in this area, but we recognize your grace as we just sang about. That's all that we need. And we thank you for the gift of that grace. So speak to us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off with Jesus and the meal at Simon the leper, <clears throat> who was a Pharisee. At that particular meal, there were at least 17 people. We know that Jesus was there, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Simon the leper, and the 12 disciples were all there. They were sharing a meal. And I told you that Simon the leper, he objected to Mary anointing Jesus with oil because of who she was, you know, that sinner. She was a sinner of some kind. And we are told that in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. <clears throat> but also the fact that the spike nard or the alabaster box was being wasted and that alabaster box contained what would be the equivalent today of ten thousand dollars worth of ointment and it was poured upon jesus and of course we know that judas objected in one account it says there was more than just judas but then we know from another account that it was judas and so probably all the other guys fell in line and when somebody makes a comment like that, what are you wasting this for? It could be sold and it could be used for the poor. Of course, being spiritual, you'd say, yeah, that's right. Why this waste of money? This, this is a terrible thing. And they thought it was just all great. But who was it being done for and who was doing it? And Jesus was so impressed with her and so disturbed by his disciples that were objecting. He said, this will be told about her. For now on, whenever this story is told about my crucifixion, you're going to have this story come along with it. And, of course, it's in all four Gospels. But you see Judas saying this, and we know from the Scripture that he was a kleptomaniac. He desired to steal from the purse. He held, he was the banker, he was the treasurer. And so the money, the $10,000, would have gotten or more, would have gone into his little bag and he would have been able to do with it what he wanted. Now, how did he use that? I don't know. He wouldn't buy things for himself. I don't know if it's influence or just stuff he would get for himself, but he controlled the money and he pilfered from that. And you look at Judas and you say, what a terrible man. You know, there's somebody else that was just like Judas. Judas and this individual were both chosen by Christ. They were both virtually with Christ 24 hours a day. They were taught by Jesus. Both of these individuals did ministry with Jesus. Both, both of them cast out demons and did miracles. Both were remorseful at what they had done. Both saw the miracles that Jesus performed. But both were self-centered. Of course, Judas, seeing how he could benefit himself, and also Peter. Now, if you remember Peter, there was a discussion in Luke chapter 22 about who was the greatest. You know, I'm greater than you. I've done more miracles than you. And they're probably going back and forth what they had accomplished. Of course, we know the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are the things that make up our flesh. We want to talk about what we have accomplished that makes us feel good, and that focuses all attention on ourselves. And, of course, Peter was saying this. How do we know it was Peter? Right after that section, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. That's right after, I'm the greatest. You know, oh, yeah, you want to be sifted like wheat? He goes, but don't worry, I have prayed for you. And then one was possessed by Satan, and the other one was used 
by Satan. Remember Peter when, far be it for me, Lord, to let this happen to you. Get thee behind me, Satan. He called Peter Satan. Now, how many people have you called Satan? We had a dog once we called Satan because it was so bad. How many people would you call Satan? And how many people would you call Judas? Have you named any of your children Judas? Do you have a cousin named Judas? Do you have a dog named Judas? You don't even name your dog Judas. I mean, it is anathema. It is a curse to call anybody Judas. And so these two individuals, they were basically the same, even to the point of denying Jesus. One committed suicide and one repented. One was given a place of honor at the Last Supper and one denied Jesus three times. They were exactly the same, but their fates turned out very differently. And I want to give you some context on this. At the Last Supper, you know, when he was being betrayed, now I have to give you a visual. Uh, Maybe over the Christmas season or Thanksgiving, maybe you sat with a lot of people and you had a big meal. As I said, in the meal at Simon the leper's house before they go on to the Passover meal, which we've gotten into as well. Simon leper's house, 17 people. Now, how would you have to configure your house to accommodate 17 people? Would you do one long table? How, how would you do that? Or would you break it into several tables? Would you have the kitty table? Have you ever been assigned to the kitty table? Uh, with those people in the household. You say, no, I don't mind. You, you adults, go ahead and sit over there. The kids are more fun than all you old fogies anyhow. You know, and so you sit with them. Well, there was this table, uh, especially during the Last Supper, that they would have had. Now, the Last Supper was prepared for them in an upper room. It was already set to go. How Jesus accomplished this, we're not told from Scripture. The disciples were told to go follow this one individual and say, the Lord is going to need to um, have communion, or not communion, but the Seder, the Passover Seder in your place. And it was all prepared for them. And again, we don't know exactly how that took place, but what would it look like and what was the seating arrangement and what was Jesus communicating through all of that? Now, to give you this visual, there would have been the 12 disciples plus Jesus, which are 13, and it would have been in the upper room and people in the household, which would have been on the bottom floor, would have been delivering whatever it was they were going to eat. Now, normally when we eat, we sit down in chairs. And that's beginning to change a little bit. Some of the chairs are really high where you're off the ground and the table is up. Some of the restaurants you go to, you have a booth and it's combined with chairs and also a booth or just strictly a booth. For Jesus and his disciples, the way that they were eating, I'm going to give you this visual. Now, I want you to look at this board right here. This board goes up, and it goes over, and it goes down. That's called a triclinium. Triclinium in the New Testament times was a table, and it looked just like this. It would go up on one side, across, and down. And the people would be seated on the outside where the stone is here, up on the top, that space, and down here to where you could walk into the table and you could serve anybody. Now imagine this is horizontal. It's not vertical. So you could walk in, you could walk in, and you could serve the people at the table. Now on the outside of that, they didn't have chairs. Usually it was on the floor. If it wasn't on the floor, it may have been a raised couch. And those couches would have gone out this direction, The couches would have gone out this direction and back in that direction. And you would have reclined on your left arm like this, on the elbow. Your elbow would have supported you, and you would have grabbed something from the table that was in front of you, and you would dip it in a bowl. Last time we were in Israel, in Jerusalem, they had us eat with no utensils. And so we'd take the pita bread and we'd dip it in the balsamic vinegar and olive oil and you would eat that and you would scoop up with the bread whatever it was you were eating. And so that's, that's how you ate. You didn't have forks or even chopsticks or anything. You just used your hands. And there's, of course, a place and a, a habit that they were in of washing hands all the time. But if you were to look at this, if this was to be the table and we brought it down this way, I can tell you exactly where Jesus was sitting. He would have been sitting not here at the end or laying down. He would have been the second one in is where he would have been. 
Do you know who would have been in the first place right there? Scripture tells us. John, the disciple John. How do we know that? Because he was able to rest his head upon the bosom of Jesus. Now just imagine Jesus is reclining like this on the table. John would have been in front of him doing the same thing. And if he had a question, he would just lean back and he'd ask Jesus a question. It's not like with us. We have our space, right? We don't get too close. This is my plate. I don't mix my vegetables with anything else on the plate. I just keep it all right there. But what they would do is they would break some bread. They would hand it to each other. Now, guess who? If John was here, Jesus was here, who was here? We know who was there. Judas. That is the place of honor. Jesus sat Judas in the place of honor. When Jesus went to the home of Simon the leper, Simon the leper would have sat Jesus right here in the place of honor. Simon the leper would have been here, and somebody who was a good friend, a a close associate, well-trusted, would have been on his right-hand side. And so you see that triclinium going around, and in front of them would have been the bowls that they needed. And Jesus would have taken a piece of bread, and he would have broken it, and he would have given some to John, and he would have given some to Judas. He even said that in Scripture, the one I give this bread to, the sop is what they called it, the one I give this sop to is the one who will betray me. And he handed it to Judas, and that's how he knew. And also he dipped it in the the bowl as well, and he turned to Judas at that point, point. he said, what you do, do quickly. And so Judas would have gotten up. Now, normally, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, the Last Supper, that picture, that is completely wrong. That's not the way it would have been. Jesus would not have been sitting in the middle. Now, if you look at that, there's all kinds of things. What's that guy's name? Dan Brown, who... Uh, wrote the book about the crucifixion and Jesus Christ and his life, and he actually married Mary. And if you look at the picture, if, if you're looking at the picture this way, Jesus is in the middle and to the left is supposed to be the Apostle John, but Dan Brown would say, no, that was actually Mary, Mary Magdalene, and he married Mary Magdalene because the individual looks a little bit feminine, and it's, oh, no, really? And that, so he makes a whole book about it. It's a total lie, total fabrication. But anyhow, that Last Supper, that scene that we see, we know that they're all posing for the painter. They're all looking across, you know, like this, and they're, they're, you see their profile. That's not how it would have been. So remember, they're laying down, leaning on the left elbow like this, and they're talking. Now, if you go all the way around, we don't know the seating of everyone else, but if you go all the way down to this side, the last seat, that would have been left for the person who is the servant. The servant was the one who was responsible for washing feet and also getting additional food. Now, what did Jesus do when he got up to the Seder? He started teaching his disciples. He let everyone know that Judas was going to betray him. But the one sitting on this side objected to something. And what was it they objected to? Washing of the feet. Who was that? That would have been Peter. Now, Peter was just like Judas. But Jesus sat him in that position to be the servant Peter was the one who led 3,000 people to the Lord on the day of Pentecost. He still had to learn what it was to be a servant. Now, Jesus got up, and as, as the people are laying down, the servant would have been able to go on the outside because they're, they're prone. They're laying out flat. They would hang their feet over their couch that they're laying on, and the servant would have gone one by one washing the feet. And so as they're all laying down, he got up, he girt himself, he took off any cloak that he had, just like a servant of the household, and he started washing feet. And what happened when he got to Peter? (laughs) You're not going to wash my feet. Why? Because that was his job. He was supposed to wash the feet of the people at the table. Now, you see, you're getting the context of what's going on here at this Jewish Seder. And Jesus said, 
if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me or my kingdom. Well, give me a bath then. He goes, no, you don't need a bath, Peter. Just your feet are dirty, okay? And so the the guy was all self-centered, just like Judas. Made the same mistakes, denied Jesus, and, uh, you know, what are you supposed to make of this? How is it that Peter ends up getting saved, but Judas ends up being condemned? When they did the same things, when they followed Satan the same way, when their desires were self-centered, how is that possible that one gets saved and one doesn't? Now, some people, if you're in the Reformed camp, they say, well, he was destined to be saved and one was destined to burn. I, I don't believe that. What would have happened if Judas would have said, oh, Lord, I can't do it. I've taken this money. I'm going to return this money. You are Lord of all. We don't know what would have happened. But of course, God knows what could have happened or would have happened, but he knows what did happen. And this is why he came, was for us. And so you have the context of the Seder, of what's going on, how they're all laid out. People would have brought the food, they would have been dipping in the same bowls, and they would have had a conversation. And when Jesus said, there's one who's going to betray me, we have an indication from Scripture that Peter was not close to Jesus because he had to motion to John, who's it going to be? And so John leaned back on the breast of Jesus and said, is it I, Lord? Who is it? Is it I? And so that's how we know also Peter was directly across. And people have done research into this. And I, I tend to agree with their estimation. All the rest of the disciples were all the way around, but we don't know in which order or which seat that they had. But Jesus was definitely not in the middle, as you see in many depictions. And so that's the context. But how is it that one would be saved and one wouldn't? Well, we'll have to wait to the end of the message here. Let's get to Matthew chapter 26, verse 31. This is the desertion of Jesus by his disciples and the denial of Peter, which is foretold in verse 31. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And of course, he is quoting Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 there. And after, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I will never, or I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same thing. And so you see, Peter is going to deny Jesus here. And scripture tells us in Matthew 10:32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. And Peter knew this, because that was in Matthew chapter 10. It had happened long before this time. And so the, the same as the case is the same with us. If we refuse to acknowledge Jesus, then... Jesus will not acknowledge us before our Father in heaven. If we are unwilling to set ourselves out there and declare that we are followers of Christ, we are his disciples, Jesus will say, well, I never knew who you were. And so he calls us to this public affirmation of who we are, that we are in him, and he is our Lord and Savior. We are to never shrink back on that, no matter what kind of ridicule or persecution we might endure. And so one of the main thoughts from here is going to be, even if we deny Christ, he still forgives us because we know the story that Peter was forgiven. But how do we deny Christ? Well, the first one obviously would be verbally. We say, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I don't follow Jesus. Or we might think we're an undercover Christian. There's no such thing as a spy Christian. We are supposed to be out there with our testimony. We can also do this by our actions those who seem to be religious or even self-disciplined and devoted, uh, and by their actions they deny that they even knew Jesus. There are those of the circumcision group in the New Testament. You know, they denied Jesus by what they did. But we can do that in our actions as well. Now, how do we do that? There is a specific mode of operation that we engage in. For instance, if we know the will of the Lord and we choose not to do it, 
we are denying his authority in our lives. Let's, let's do simple things. Like, go to church. If you're a believer, what do you do? Do you go to church? If you're a believer, do you read the scriptures? Well, yeah, read or listen or have somebody speak them to you, but you want to know what God's will is. These are basic things. What about prayer? Well, we're going to pray. Now, I have to admit, there's been times in my life where prayer has just been a huge bubble around everything that I do, and other times, not so much. Do you guys experience the same thing, or am I alone in that? You know, and also being in the Scripture, it's like, yeah, I really need to get into the Scripture. And you might look at me and go, but you're the pastor. No, I'm the sinner. I know these things probably more than anybody else, and I just, his grace is sufficient for me. You know, I'll, I'll do what I can. I'll keep on plugging away. I'll make sure that I, whenever I have the opportunity, I take advantage of it, and I deny my flesh. But, of course, just like you, I'm not 100% successful in that. But we know that God will help us to be continuing over time. Or what if we want to do something and we haven't asked God? Name what it is. Like, give an example of that. I'm considering going to Cambodia this year. And on one hand, I was thinking, I need to go, I need to go. And I keep on having these little visions of where I've been in Cambodia. I'll tell you exactly what's been happening. I I get up in the morning and I make some coffee. Coffee, you know, when I I make it up there. And and as I'm preparing that, that's a layover from New Jersey, right, Alan? Anyhow, as I make it all... I get this vision of where I've been in Cambodia. And it keeps on coming to me. I thought, well, that's weird. You know, and it's like the same place. I, I keep on seeing that just in my mind's eye. You know, it's not in front of me like a television or anything. And then, you know, I, I started asking him again. And I, I, I seemed to get this sense of, no, you're supposed to remain. And so I don't know which one I'm supposed to do. And, and so I'm waiting on that uh, to see. But... I want to know. If I'm supposed to go, I ask Jesus, just let me know. I'm listening. My ears are peeled. I just want to know if I'm supposed to go or if I'm not supposed to go. And it has to be answered by him. If one of you guys come up to me now and say, you're supposed to go. And another one comes up and says, you're not supposed to go. Yeah, that's not going to work. It's God that has to do it. And so I, I want to listen for his will. Once I hear it, then I need to act. If I hear it and I don't act, I'm denying Christ. I'm denying his lordship. Whether it's a job, whether it's where I live, whether it's a relationship I have, whatever it might be, and we should ask in the smallest of things. Even when I'm driving around town, I try to prioritize what I need to do. I ask, Lord, which one should I do first? And I get a sense of, Well, I should go do that. Okay, I'm going to go do that one. I try to follow that. I try to listen to his voice, even in the daily pursuit of what I'm supposed to do as a living. And so we can deny him in our actions or in our inaction. So we can deny him verbally. We can deny him in our actions and in our inaction. There are two groups of the Israelites, the Gadites and the Reubenites. Before they crossed the Jordan River, they saw all this land that it was good and they were starting to subdue uh, the people and they were going to go into the promised land. And when they were doing that, the Gadites and the Reubenites said, the land here is good. We don't need to go on the other side of the Jordan. We, you know, this is fine. Can't we just camp out here? We want this to be our inheritance. Of course, Joshua turned to them and said, if you fail to do this, boy, you're going to be in trouble. That's Bill's version of the Bible. But that, that's basically what Joshua told them. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We will cross over with you. We'll leave our flocks and herds and our families here, and we'll help you subdue the land, and then we'll go back. And Joshua said, okay, if you're going to do that, that's fine. This will be your inheritance. But if they failed to go into the nation of Israel, crossing the Jordan or the land of Canaan there, then they would have been sinning by their inaction. That's called a sin of omission. Things that we ought to do. You know, the scripture says that. If you fail to do the things you ought to do, for all of us, it is sin. And so we can deny the lordship of Jesus Christ verbally, by our action, and by inaction. And, of course, we see this repeated through Scripture 
over and over. Going on in verse 36 of Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went to the disciples to, play, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And so he was exceedingly or intensely sad because he knew what was coming. And the way, if you put all the gospel accounts together, what happened was all the disciples were with him. He went to the oil press. That's what Gethsemane means. It's an oil press. And they would take the olive trees that are in that garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, and they would take the olives and they would have a press right there. And so that's where he went. It's not a garden like Balboa Park. It's not like that. If you go over there today, you will see olive trees. They believe to be over 2,000 years old. They would have been there at the time of Christ. And you see them, and they're big, fat at the bottom, and they've been pruned at the top several times, and there's still sprouts coming out. And so the garden is its still there uh, to this day, they've maintained it over the years, over the centuries. And so Jesus would have taken his disciples, all but three of them said, okay, you guys wait here. He would have taken Peter and the sons of Zebedee a little bit farther. And after that, he went a little bit farther. And the gospel accounts, they tell us that he fell on his knees and then he was face down. And he was greatly troubled by this. And so you could see his step, his gait, start to crumble a little bit. He falls on his knees, and then he just goes face down. And we also know that he was in such anguish that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. If you go to Israel today, there is this church. It's in the Kidron Valley there. It's called the Church of the Nations. And as you walk inside, they have these stone-covered windows. They're stone. It's a... uh, particular type of stone that is up there and it's like a dark blue or purple and it's almost completely blackened out just enough light gets through and it was it's supposed to symbolize Christ's darkest hour and as you walk in there's nothing in the building except up at the front you have this area it's probably twice as big as it's probably as big as the stage going across and and it has this little uh, silver colored Uh, fence going around it all the way around and it's just the bedrock that's right there and they say that's the place that jesus sweat uh, great drops of blood of course we don't know that but you should see people as they come in christ's darkest hour they see where the blood would have gone down on the stone and we don't know that they just made it up as another tourist attraction but people reverence the place as if it is the very place where Jesus sweat those great drops of blood. And so this is a a trying time. I have never been that distressed. I don't know about you, but it has never entered my life. My life is much better than this. He goes on in verse 39 and says, Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, My father, in the Gospel of Mark, he says, Abba, which is equivalent for us to Daddy. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, again, Abba, in the Gospel of Mark, it is not possible, is it possible for this cup to be taken away? Excuse me. If it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, Unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back again, found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. Do you guys remember being in school? And when you were in school, the subject material was so boring, you could hardly keep your eyes open. I remember one time in in college, I was like this, and it was a history class. And my elbow went off the side. The whole class stopped. The teacher looked at me and go, oh, what? And I, you know, just sat back up. That's, that's the disciples. They're in the garden. They, oh, they, they just go, they, their flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. I just need some sleep. You know, we want that sleep. And they didn't really realize the hour that they were experiencing. 
And Jesus, he says in verse 44, so he left and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now this condition, it's actually a medical condition that they talk about the great drops of blood sweating. It's called hematidrosis is what it's called. And it's where the capillaries in the uh, pores actually break. And because of that, blood comes out. And so they do know of this condition, and it usually hand, uh, comes under extreme physical stress. They know that. But also extreme emotional distress. And so that's what Jesus was going through in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. It says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And again, I told you about the Church of Nations. If you ever make it down there, you can see that. So the main thought is, it's what I want to do. I want to stay awake. I want to pray, but I just can't seem to accomplish. Do you guys know where Paul talked about that in the New Testament? He said, the things I want to do are not the things I do, and the things I don't want to do are the very things that I do? do anybody know where that is? What, what book? It's Romans. The end of Romans chapter 7. And it's a fantastic book that talks about the weakness of our flesh and how we'd like to do those things we really ought to do. And, and of course, this gives us some insight into Judas and Peter as well as we continue through here. Now, Jesus was definitely going into this bad time of suffering. That's lightly to say, saying it lightly. And he suffered tremendous. We can't even imagine the suffering that he was going through. It is considered the most brutal form of execution to hang on a cross just because of how the person dies by asphyxiation. They can't breathe. And that's why they break their legs, and so they can't continue to breathe and push up with the nails. But this idea of suffering, Job wrote about this in chapter 2, verse 10. And we'll familiar, we are familiar with what he did suffer. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. This is a, his wife that said, just curse God and die. Uh, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So you read this, and you go, what? Troubles coming my way because God deemed it to be so? Remember, Satan not only wanted to sift Peter like wheat, but he wanted to take Job's life. And God said, no, you can't take his life, but you can take everything else. He didn't take his wife. I don't know why, but he, he took his kids and the animals, and he left them with his wife who said, curse God and die. The worst counsel you could possibly get. And so he was in the midst of the suffering saying that, you know, God has allowed this to take place. Also in Lamentations, it says in verse 38 of chapter 3, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? You know, we have this idea that God only brings blessings to us. He doesn't bring trials of any kind. Or Isaiah 45, verse 7, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord do all these things. <clears throat> so when was the last time you didn't coddle your child or your grandchild and you allowed them to experience the consequence of their actions? Have you ever said to them, go ahead, fine, you want to do that? Go ahead. I, I remember, um, I'm going to tell a little personal story here, my son he decided he wanted to go shark fishing in the middle of the night down to Harbor Island, him and his buddy Jeff at the time. He was 16, 16 or 17. And so he went down to the parking lot that's there, went out, got their shark. They came back in, calls up. This is before we had cell phones and beepers. He calls up, and so middle of the night, our phone rings, which is right next to the bed. Pick up the phone. Patty answers, hello? And it's 3 o'clock in the morning. And she, she goes, what? What? Oh, she hands me the phone. 
She says, it's Scotty. He wants you to come get him. I go, what? It's 3 o'clock in the morning. What are you talking about? And so I grab the phone and go, what? What's going on? He goes, Dad, I locked my keys in my car. 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, I got to get up like 6 a.m. or 5 a.m. And I go, what? He goes, yeah, can you come? Can you bring a key and, and come get us? I said, no. Figure it out. Good night. And I hung it up. My wife was incredulous. What did you do? You know, he's a young man. I said, figure it out. And he did. He figured it out. He dug through some trash cans and he got a coat hanger and he was able to jimmy his door open and all of that. And it's like, let him experience the consequences of his actions. Don't pull back. Now, some people today, they'd say, that's child abuse to do something like that. But he was better. For, he, last time we got together, he reminded me of it. Remember that, Dad? Yeah, I, I, I remember that. And so, you know, the, the suffering that comes from God, God teaches us the same lessons that can come no other way except through suffering. But we don't want to experience suffering. We, we order our lives in such a way where we do not have to suffer in any way. And that's a noble pursuit. But God says, no, I don't think so. And he allows us to experience suffering and pain and sorrow because there is no other way to make us into who we need to be without it. And so we don't sign up for suffering. We don't run into it. But we can't be adverse to it when it comes. And just like Christ, we can be perfected through suffering. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so that's just an encouragement, even though we are called to suffer for him. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. When we find ourselves there, be content. If we can get out of the suffering, do it. But oftentimes... God says, no, you're going to stay here for a while and this condition is going to remain. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, was with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once Jesus to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of the, excuse me, one of Jesus' companions, do we know who that was? It was Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Now, this is Malchus. How this happened exactly, he probably, Peter goes, no way. Like he just said, I'm going to die for you. I'm not going to allow you to be killed. So he pulls out his sword. He takes a swing at Malchus. Malchus probably goes, whoa, like this, slices off the ear, falls to the ground. He goes, my ear. You know, he's holding it like that. And Jesus says, knock it off, put away the sword. Again, Bill's version of the Bible. He, he picks up the ear. And he goes, hold on a second. Sticks it back on there and goes, there. That's good. Now, if you were there and you were a soldier, you would have gone, Really? And we're supposed to arrest this guy? How? Oh, it's, it's just incredible what's going on here. It says, put your sword back in its place, verse 52. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. That's thousands of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. So we see that Jesus healed uh, Malchus that was here. But from this point on, Jesus goes before, I want to say, six many trials that were there. You had Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas stepped down, and then they installed Caiaphas. 
After that, you had the leaders of the Sanhedrin, which is recorded in John chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. And after this, he was taken to Pilate and then to the Herod, the Roman governor, uh, after that. And then he returned back to Pilate, who finally sentenced him to death. So he's being taken around to all these places. And you might say, well, isn't that kind of a far place to go all in the early hours of the morning? You could probably walk all of that in Jerusalem, the old city, in maybe one hour, just going from place to place. So all this could have happened very quickly. And, of course, we have the, the story of this going on in verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. So Peter was following Jesus, but just at a distance just far enough away where he wasn't caught up in the middle of it. And, of course, this was all an illegal trial carried on by the Sanhedrin. Capital cases were to be tried during the day, and the verdict must also be reached during the day. They reached this before sunrise. Trials must not be held on the eve of the Sabbath or on the eve of a festival day. Uh, to be guilty of blaspheming, the blasphemer is not culpable unless he pronounces the name himself, which is uh, the name of God, that he is that particular uh, deity, or he is Jehovah or Yahweh. Jesus never said that. Now, going on, witnesses had to be examined carefully, and if there was a case uh, for uh, an argument for an acquittal, it needed to be presented first, and that was never presented at all. And also Leviticus 24.16 says, Anyone who blasphemes in the name of the Lord must be put to death. And he never blasphemed. And Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And, and so they asked him in, de, in a declarative way uh, who he was. And it says in verse 60, But they did not find any, of course, any accusation against him to be true. Though many false witnesses came forward, not even two people could agree. For two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy uh, the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's in John chapter 2, verse 18. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God. By the way, is it a capital offense to say, I'm going to destroy this temple and in three days raise it up? No, that's not blaspheming. You might be a person in your own mind that thinks you're more powerful than you actually are, but that's not an offense to kill somebody. And so, going on, verse 64 again, Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I tell you, oh, excuse me, verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you, under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming in the clouds of heaven. And we have this repeated in first, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So he is speaking of a future point. This is a prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. And then the decree comes in verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you. They would have put a veil or something over his head and they would have been punching him the whole time. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about this in verses 6 and 7. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before the shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. So he didn't protest when all of this abuse was taking place. Verse 69 says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and the servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. 
I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. How do you know if somebody's from Texas? Or how do you know if somebody's from the South? You, I have relatives back in Oklahoma. Boy, it's just as thick of an accent. You, you could, it's like butter. You know, you just take off that accent. That's how they knew that he was from Galilee. He was with Jesus. You're a Galilean. We can tell by the way you talk. And he says, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, and he went outside and wept bitterly. Now it also says in the gospel, other gospel accounts that he was within eyeshot of Jesus. When all this is going on, he's in the courtyard of the high priest. And as soon as he said, I don't know the man, Jesus looks up, looks right at Peter. That's the point. He wept bitterly. He went out and he wept bitterly. He couldn't handle it anymore. And he left. And what Jesus spoke about him came true. So what made the difference between Peter, who denied Jesus Christ, and Judas? Why did Peter end up getting saved? He totally denied Christ. Matthew chapter 6 says, if you deny Christ, that's it. You're going to get denied before the Father in heaven by Jesus himself. Well, Judas didn't really love Jesus. Peter did. Peter had a close relationship with him, and he thought he would die for him. But he found out through self-preservation, he didn't want to really die for somebody else, but Jesus was in line to die for him. And how did, how did Jesus look at Peter? Did he look at him and go, Something like that? Or did he just go, you know, see, I told you. And of course, Jesus knew the future, that he would be restored. But he looked at him like, you're my friend. You're my, you are loved. And so how could you do this? And of course, Jesus was, I'm sure, tremendously saddened, even though he would have known it was going to take place. Peter knew it, and he was crushed on the inside that he could do such a thing. Now, Judas, did he regret what he did? He did. He went back to the chief priest. He took the 30 pieces of silver. He threw it back to them. They said, what's that to us that you have betrayed innocent blood? So what? And they said, with the money, we cannot take this. This is blood money. And so they bought the potter's field for those who would be buried that would be strangers in the land or those who are homeless or the destitute who were there. And of course, we, we know all of that. But also, Judas, he was a devil. And how do we know that? It says that in John chapter 6, verse 70. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And he meant Judas, the son of, Sim- son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. So deep in his heart, Judas had ulterior motives. But none of the other disciples saw it. Remember when Mary anointed Jesus with oil? It says in one gospel account, they all, or they were all in agreement. Like, why did you do this with that, that alabaster box? That could have been sold. And they, yes, it could have been sold. And righteousness just bubbled to the top. How dare this woman do something like this? And it all came because of Judas, the devil, because he wanted the money. And Peter, you know, when Peter, when he denied Christ, he was sorry. Judas was sorry. He regretted what he had done. He felt guilty, so guilty, he committed suicide. Peter did not commit suicide. This is the account where Jesus looks at Peter. Luke chapter 22, verse 61. says, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. 
Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. And so what is the difference between the two? The intent. The intent in Judas's heart was for himself. He wanted the money. Whether he wanted Jesus to rise to political power or not, he just didn't want to do things Jesus' way. The disciples did not know it. They did not recognize it. He was one of the 12. He was doing the same things that the rest of the 12 were doing, but in his heart was wickedness, the intent not to follow Christ. Where Peter, his intent was to follow Christ, and self got in the way. Which one are we? Do we have this intent when we know God's will to follow through with it? Or are we trying to follow through with it and we just get tripped up? And that was Peter. Peter wanted so much to follow Christ where he would declare, I'll die for you. Well, yeah, but your flesh got in the way. But he was the one that was crucified just like Christ, only upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified the same way that the Lord was. And so he ended up becoming one of the greatest individuals in the New Testament that we have, even though he had some problems with Paul, and I'm not going to go too much into that. But what he did, he was just a fantastic witness for Christ. But Jesus had to teach him, take the place of the servant at the table. You want to be the greatest. You think you're the strongest. You think you'll kill anybody that'll come along with your little knife cutting off ears. And he goes, no. Be humble. Be lowly. Follow the desires of God and do your best to do so through the power of the Spirit. Or Judas, everybody thinks that I'm working for the Lord, but I'm not. I'm working for me. That's what we're supposed to walk away with, these two individuals. And how do we know which ones we are? Well, we know on the inside, but nobody else may know. That's the tragedy. In all the churches that exist, there are people like Judas. Everybody thinks they're spiritual. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven, and some are not. We just want to do a heart check to make sure we say to God, God, I want to do what you want Help me, Romans 12, 1, to offer my body as a daily sacrifice to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, help us to learn the lessons from Judas and Peter. That Judas had evil intent in his heart, not wanting to do your will. And we, Lord, hopefully all of us in here, we are like Peter. We want to do your will. Just help us to die to the flesh, to deny it, to crucify it. And we can't do this on our own. We can only do it with your help. And so we ask for that this morning. Fill us, Lord, with your spirit. Empower us to do your will. Help us to deny the flesh. Help us to speak only words that are helpful and beneficial. Help us to make our decisions according to your will, that we don't just act impulsively because we're not feeling something or we're not getting the information we want so we act in an impulsive manner help us Lord to be submissive and to be patient and we know that you are with us and so we give you glory for that in Jesus name and the church said Amen. Amen.